Welcome to an American Family Radio special broadcast. For the next hour, we'll present a message from Miki Addison of Airing the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Miki shared this message during a recent marriage and family conference. The message is titled, God Sets Families Apart. And here's Miki Addison. First, I want to start off with my testimony. I was raised in a fatherless home by a mother who had a third grade education but was not third grade educated. So here is the story. My mother's mother, my grandmother, was um, a lady of the night and had multiple children by multiple different men. And uh, my mom, for a long time, didn't know who her father was. And once they learned, she still wasn't sure. Um, She was not made to go to school. So when she was eight years old, someone said, this child needs to be in school at eight. She needs to be in school. And so she goes and they want to put her in kindergarten. My mother, they want to put her in kindergarten. And my mom tells the story that she walked into the class and she said, these kids are little. And she said, I don't want to be in this class. So they put her in second grade. They put her in second grade. And uh, she went for one year and was supposed to go back the next year and she went maybe half a year for third grade or whatever, but that was it. She didn't go to school again after that until she enrolled in Job Corps in Texas. And I was raised by this mom after my father left us. He walked out on our family, and my father being the Texan that he is, he gave my mom, um, as my mom describes it, a beautiful pearl-handled revolver and gave her a quick lesson on how if anybody comes into the apartment, you just point it at them and you, you shoot them. <laughs> but I'm leaving. And that is not something that you plan for when you get married. You don't plan to have children that you then raise by yourself. You don't plan to have an environment where you know every day of your existence that your husband made a conscious decision to leave. So we would move back from Dallas, Texas to New Orleans where we would grow up in Section 8 housing on every government program known to man. I mean, whatever the alphabets are, you call them out, I existed on it. And my mom, for a long time, I didn't know this until I was an adult, saw her life as a failure. And it wasn't until I was a young woman that I was able to not only learn that my mother saw her life as a failure, but I learned that I had the ability and the opportunity to share something with my mom that she had not considered. That better than any comfortable lifestyle that she could have ever given me, my mom gave me Jesus. She raised us to know and fear the Lord. And my mom was doing something interesting in the mid-70s, in the early 80s, and the late 90s. She was saying things to me that I didn't know would later shape my conservative views. My mom would say, these food stamps are not providing for us. She would say, this government housing is not providing for us. She always said, God is providing for us. 
that he is taking care of us, that we depend on the Lord. So she taught me from a very early age to depend on the Lord, to look to the Lord, to love his word. And the reason I set that up in telling my story, and of course you know that's the shortened version of it, is because the picture that I want to paint this morning is one of grace. And I wanna talk about how God uses the family, the structure of the family, the unit of the family to advance his kingdom. The Lord uses the backbone of our culture, the backbone of society, the family, to speed the gospel and to expand the church. We don't see that as we should see it today because many of us parents have abdicated our role as the chief, first, and foremost disciple maker in our home. This would be largely unknown to the early church. That we as Christians would expect that someone else would teach and train our children would be unfamiliar to the early church. They would not recognize this phenomenon where you have parents who think that somebody else is supposed to train their kid in godliness, raise them to know the Lord and to fear him. So my encouragement this morning is for us to see the family as God intended for the family to be seen. Psalm chapter 68, verses five and six says, a father of the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy habitation. God set the solitary in families. He, he brings out those who are bound into prosperity, but the rebellious dwell in a dry, a dry land. We know that God in his grace has given us some parallels. He's given us some pictures, uh, physically speaking, to help us understand deep theological issues to help us understand his character, right? So God gives us a picture of family physically to help us understand theologically his family. This is what he invites us into. And God does this with other things. He does this with covenant and marriage. Marriage, the closest example that we have in understanding covenant, we contend for our marriages because it's a picture of Christ in the church. So God introduces us to the family and the backbone and foundation of every society. He introduces us to the family from the very beginning. You guys all know this and I'm gonna go through quickly because the crux of what I wanna get to is really near the end. But I wanna just set up and give some background, right? So God sets up and he establishes family. It's the husband and wife, it's one unit. From the very beginning, he establishes this one flesh unit, this unbroken bond, the two becoming one flesh. And you're going to see God all throughout scriptures in the Old Testament and in the New Testament continue to reinforce how important this family unit is. God is the master of foreshadowing. Don't you guys know this? Like when you read the scriptures, he's the master of setting you up to be able to see something later on and say, oh my goodness, that's just like this. And he does that amazingly with family all throughout scripture. When we read the scriptures, we actually see a special grace that God extends to the family unit, a special protection. 
We see an unmerited favor that exists in the context of family, and God does this intentionally because remember, he is going to take that one flesh unit and use it as an example later to say this is a picture of Christ in the church. And what are our benefits in the church, in the family of God? What do we enjoy because of that unmerited favor that God extends to us? So you've got this first family, this first family that basically they fail at living in perfection. (laughs) I think if you fail at living in perfection, there's really nowhere else for you to go from there. Right? I guess the only way to top that would be to raise a murderer. (laughs) That's what they did. So they fail at perfection. They raise a murderer who incidentally, through his line, now look at the decline here, right? Adam and Eve begin this decline and this rottenness in the family unit. They fail at perfection. They raise a murderer. It is that murderer who five generations later will have a great, 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 great grandson, Lamech, and he will be the first man to take two wives. Not God's plan. There are things that happen generationally that are the result of brokenness and sin that in the church we have normalized because it's easier to do that than to fight it. By the time we get to Genesis chapter six, verses five through eight, the Lord is so grieved by his creation that he purposes to wipe them out. And there was one 500 year old man named Noah, and you guys know the story, right? Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah was a just man, perfect in his generation. Noah walked with God. The Bible teaches us this. Notice that the Bible does not talk about the righteousness of Noah's family. Notice that Noah is the only man who has found favor and grace in the eyes of the Lord. He alone is the righteous man that the Lord is going to pluck out of this catastrophic worldwide flood. Noah alone. Remember, our God is the master of foreshadowing. But this father, as the head of his family, receives a grace from God that extends to his family, they don't deserve that. In our minds, when we read the scriptures, you know what we often think? We think that Noah was righteous, so it must have been that his three sons and their daughters and his wife, they were all, because they all made it in the ark. The Bible does not tell us that. The Bible says that Noah alone was righteous in his generations and that the Lord extended a grace to him that by extension went to his family. What is God doing? He is recognizing a family unit. 
And he is demonstrating a grace that is undeserved, but is received because it is a family unit. So this family of four, four sets of families, are the new people on earth, Genesis 9:19, And they are expressly given the charge to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. It's almost identical to the charge that was given to Adam and Eve. They get to restart in the context of a family unit repopulating the earth. The Lord does something amazing over and over with the institution of family and the structure of family. He starts with a family. Genesis chapter one in the creation account, he starts with a family. When he destroys the earth, he restarts with families. When he makes a new nation of people who were not a people, he starts with a family. He takes Abram and Sarai and he tells them to leave, take themselves, they are a unit, they are a one flesh family unit. And he's going to make of that family a great nation. Through this family, Abraham, and I'm skipping forward, you guys fast forward with me in the interest of time. Through this family, Abraham is going to come the mess that is the lineage and heritage of Jesus. <laughs> there are so many people in the earthly lineage of our Lord Jesus Christ that we would put in the category of that family. Y'all know what I'm talking about. You know, it's that family. He's not saved. She's saved. She loves the Lord, but he's not. Pray their strength. That family. When they tell me she used to be, but now, you know, that family. When you read Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 1, Matthew is working overtime to establish that Jesus Christ hits old-time prophecy head-on in his lineage, right? So he's going to trace back 42 generations to that family, Abraham and Sarah. He's showing that he is the, the rightful heir to the throne of David. He is going back 42 generations. But as he does that, Matthew does something that is interesting. And in a modern context, many of us would be like, oh, Matthew, like... You know, just give the fathers and let people go back and do their own research. But Matthew doesn't do that. In fact, as Matthew traces back 42 generations back to Abraham, he's got to sludge through a lot of mess in families, a lot of dysfunction in families. There are a lot of skeletons that get exhumed in Matthew's account. Through all of this brokenness that Matthew uncovers, we learn that God takes imperfection and works something perfect. When you read Matthew chapter one, Matthew lists Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth 
and of course Bathsheba, which don't y'all think her name is so ironic all the time when you read it? Bathsheba. I don't know what you do with that, but I just notice things like that. I think it's funny. Um, they're all Gentiles. Not only that, they're not the kind of Gentiles that would have a desirable pedigree. Let's talk about some of the brokenness in families. So you've got Tamar. She conceived twins by her father-in-law, and that by way of deceiving him into believing she was a cult prostitute. But Judah says she was more righteous than him. Genesis 38, you read that. Dude, that's brokenness. That's that family. You, you know who Perez's daddy is? You know how that happened? Everybody knows. Then there's Rahab. Broken families. The harlot. <laughs> but the harlot with wisdom and faith. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. If you have your Bible and you want to look at this, I'm one of those people that when a person calls out a scripture, I kind of just like to read it myself, um, see it in my Bible, read scriptures after a little bit. But you can do that if you want. Don't feel compelled. I think it'll be up on the screen. Joshua chapter 2, verses 8 through 13. Now before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the terror of you has fallen on us, and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain any more courage in anyone because of you, for the Lord your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Verse 12, now therefore I beg you, swear to me by the Lord since I have shown you kindness, that you will also show kindness, and watch what she, look at what she requests, that you will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brother, my sisters, and all that they have, and deliver our lives from death. We know that her request was granted. We know that she makes it into the lineage, Jesus' earthly lineage. The harlot, the prostitute. And then you have Ruth. You're like, no, but Ruth is good. Remember, where you go, I'll go, and your God will be my God, and wherever you, and that's good. And he's like, that's Ruth. And so there's nothing wrong with Ruth. Yeah, she's a Gentile, but she was loyal, and Ruth was not a harlot. She submitted to her mother-in-law. You're like, yeah, it's Ruth, right? Ruth was a Moabite. Her tribe was the result of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his elder daughter. Some of them has six fingers. I'm just kidding, I don't know that. That's, I don't know that. But that's just the women. When you read Old Testament history, actual, factual, when you read Old Testament history, 
The men were not polished either. But God preserved family to speed the gospel and to build his church. Now at this point, I wanna say something because I think it's important for us to note this. We have to make sure that we know the difference when we read in scripture between what God is condoning and what God is recording. Because we have a lot of brokenness all throughout the scriptures, but it is not to be our model. It is simply to point us to what God does in spite of that brokenness. In the New Testament, as we continue skipping ahead, God does something amazing in saving entire households when they hear the gospel. There is a protection that is afforded these family structures as a result of the intactness of their family. And it has generational effects. Lydia, in Acts chapter 16, verses 14 through 15. This wealthy woman, this seller of purple, hears the gospel. And not only does she respond to the gospel, but her family hears the gospel and they respond to the gospel. Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira who worshiped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household were baptized, she begged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. So she persuaded us. This woman hears the gospel and brings it back what? to her household, to her family. Her family responds to the gospel and her family is saved. There is a grace extended to the family. As broken as it is, as messed up as it often is, there is a grace that God extends to the family. The Philippian jailer, this is one of my favorite stories. The Philippian jailer includes some things that have caused people to stumble theologically. Because the Philippian jailer asks this question, it is an iconic question, if you will, what must I do to be saved, right? And the Apostle Paul gives a response to the Philippian jailer's question that some people have taken to believe that because this man believed, then his family automatically got baptized and they are automatically saved. That doesn't accord with scripture. What you actually see here, and I think it's something very interesting, I believe you see the Apostle Paul operating prophetically, speaking something that is to happen. This is not a doctrine that because you are saved, then your kids will automatically be saved. But I believe by the Spirit of God, the Apostle Paul was telling what was going to happen. And the Bible actually backs this up, so let's look at it. Acts chapter 16, we're gonna look at verses 25 through 34. But at midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were open and everyone's chains were loose and the keeper of the prison 
awakening from sleep and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, do yourself no harm for we are all here. Then he called for a light, ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. We have to look at that very carefully because there are two things happening at the same time. I believe that the Bible is allowing us to see a prophetic operation, but he's also the spirit of God allowing us to see the protection of the family unit. Verse 32 says, then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. In other words, they had to hear the gospel and respond. But the gospel got to them through the head of their household. The gospel came to an entire family unit. Verse 33 and he took them that same hour of the night and washed their stripes, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when they had brought them into his house, he set food before them and he rejoiced, having believed in God with all his household. He believed in God with all of his household. There was something interesting that happens in 1 Corinthians as the gospel is spreading and as believers are growing in their faith, in the Corinthian church, they start to think that if they are married to a non-believer, they should leave that person. Some of the Corinthians start to think that if they're unmarried, they're more spiritual than those who are married. So there is some chaos that kind of starts to break out and the apostle Paul has to deal with that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16, he does deal with that. And he talks about the sanctity of the, the family unit and how it actually sets the family apart when there is even at least one believer present. It's an amazing grace. Think back to Noah, when there is at least one righteous present. You're listening to American Family Radio. This is a message from Miki Addison, which was recorded during the Urban Family Talk Marriage and Family Conference. This message is titled, God Sets Families Apart. And here again is Miki Addison. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, if any brother has a wife who does not believe and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. And a woman who has a husband who does not believe, if he is willing to live with her, let her not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. They are set apart. There is something different about them. Before I was a Christian, I became a Christian at 15, but before I was a Christian, I used to go home and tell my mom that I felt like I didn't fit in in my school, 
And I would say, you know, mom, <laughs> I just feel like I don't fit in. I feel like I don't belong around this group of people, you know. And I wasn't a Christian yet. I was going to church and everything, but I'd not made a profession of faith. And my mom would say, you're not like them. I wouldn't say this to her, but I would think sometimes, man, but it would be easier if I were. God sets families apart. There is a distinction when there is even one believer in a family. There is a special grace in that family. And the enemy works over time to destroy that and to mar that grace that is present, even if there is one believer in that family, just one. Charles Spurgeon, in 1871, um, he said, it sometimes happens that a good man has to go alone to heaven. God's election has separated him from the midst of an ungodly family, and notwithstanding his example and his prayers and his admonitions, they still remain unconverted, and he himself, a solitary one, a speckled bird amongst them, has to pursue his lonely flight to the skies. He says it sometimes happens that way. Charles Spurgeon said, far oftener, that's what he wrote, I just want y'all to know that. Far off, 1871, far oftener, however, it happens that the God who is the God of Abraham becomes the God of Sarah and then of Isaac and then of Jacob. And though grace does not run in the blood and regeneration is not of blood nor of birth, yet do it very frequently it happens, he says, and I want to say almost always, that God, by means of one of a household, draws the rest to himself. He calls an individual and then uses him to be a sort of spiritual decoy to bring the rest of the family into the gospel net. The family, God's tool to advance the gospel and grow the church. We had all kinds of questions come in when we started planning this conference and people asked us, um, can I come to this conference if I'm a single mom? You know, what if I'm remarried? What if I have stepkids? Can I, is this conference for me? We thought that um, the answer to that question would be obvious, that this conference is for whoever. But I understand why people would ask that question, because in the church, we believe that the appearance of perfection is preferable. You can have all kinds of dysfunction you can have a wife that is insubordinate. You can have children who jump rope with Satan. <laughs> but as long as you show up on Sunday and y'all look good and intact, y'all are all right with us. 
The Bible actually does not give us a picture of that. The Bible actually shows us God using quite broken people. You could say that the lineage of Jesus was royal and messy, or you can say it was a royal mess. <laughs> and even in the New Testament, we get a picture of God using brokenness to advance the gospel and build the church. Timothy is one example of those individuals in scripture who, can I just say it the way we would say it in New Orleans, Eunice's little boy daddy was not saved. He wasn't. But there is something that Lois and Eunice were able to impart to Timothy. Spiritually, Eunice was functioning like a single mom. Timothy's father was spiritually absent, and everybody knew it. Everybody knew it, so much so that when he grabbed the attention of the Apostle Paul, the Apostle Paul wanting to take him on journey with him, quickly had him circumcised because everybody knew his father was Greek. But what God does with Timothy and through Timothy in the midst of all of his chaos in his family is that in all of the New Testament, Timothy is the only man to be called a man of God. Timothy, Eunice's son, you know, the one whose daddy is a pagan. There is a special grace that God extends to the family unit. Broken and twisted and messed up as that unit often is, God does something amazing with it. I want to tell you about a woman named Monica. Monica was a Christian, but her husband wasn't. In fact, Monica was actually married to a real pagan. Monica and her pagan husband had a son, and Monica prayed for her son that he would not be like his dad. She prayed all the time that he would not be like his dad, that her son would receive the faith that she was communicating to him. Unfortunately, that didn't happen. Monica's son grew up to love decadence. He was a womanizer. He had a mistress. He had a child with that mistress. He traveled around, sleeping here and there, he worshiped himself. He loved his flesh. He loved everything that was sensual. He was a hurt and an embarrassment to Monica. Monica died praying for her son. The only thing that she would take to her grave is that she had prayed for her son and asked God to save him. 
But her son, as he often was, was away from home when she died. He was actually in Italy. When he was in Italy, he heard a voice telling him to open it and read. And somehow he knew that voice was telling him to open the Bible and to read the scriptures. So he did. And taking a different look at the scriptures, at the prompting of this voice that he heard, he comes to faith in Jesus. So he leaves Italy to go back to North Africa because he wants to tell Monica, his mother, that he is a believer, that he is saved, but his mother is already dead. He is too late. So all Monica knew was that her son was in rebellion against God. Her son was the early great theologian Augustine. After his conversion, Augustine went on to be a pastor, a preacher, and a theologian. There was, listen, no one before him, and not until John Calvin after him, did anyone write so vehemently and so passionately about sin and rebellion and sensuality and the flesh and the sin nature, and Augustine knew it well because he had lived it. There is a special grace on the family. And even when we don't see it, don't you think that Monica had those times where she wondered if God heard her? She wondered if her prayers were breaking through? There was a moment in Augustine's history where he actually got rid of his mistress. And Monica learned about that and she thought, oh, this is it. He's coming around, okay, this is it. And then he got another mistress. But in due season, I believe that if this story were written in the context of the scriptures, it might go something like, and God remembered Monica's prayers. And not only did God save her son, but he used him to expand the church and advance the gospel. There is a special grace on the family unit. This is why the enemy attacks it so much. Your unbelieving husband is not your enemy. Your unbelieving wife is not your enemy. Your rebellious children are not your enemy. There is one common enemy. And he wants their destruction like he wants your destruction. In 1708, there was a little boy who was five years old and his family's house caught fire and all of the kids were dragged from the house, pulled from the fire and everything and they're standing outside and um, they're watching the house burn, you know, it's 1708. So they're watching the house burn and the neighbors all come out and the family's standing there with the kids and the mom looks down and she's like, there's one more, there's one more. 
And so they form this human chain, these men form this human ladder to get up to the top bedroom to get the last child that is still left in the house. They pluck him from the house and he's brought to his family and his mother, Susanna, looks at him and she says, you are a, a reed, a branch plucked from the fire. This is John Wesley. John Wesley was raised in what we might call one of those families. The mom was like a master administrator. She had all of those jokers in line, every single one of them. She homeschooled them. She taught them theology. The dad was a preacher. The mom was at home with the kids. She taught them theology. She was a master organizer. Everybody would see them coming and be like, the Wesleys. They were that family. They were the family that, you know, you go home at night and you're like, man, if we could be more like the Wesleys. Right? But John Wesley had some problems in his life. The strength of his mom, her administrative ability, made it difficult for John to relate emotionally with women. For example, when a woman wanted to connect with him at a heart level, he wanted to talk about theology. Recorded church history, I'm not making it up. Y'all go back and read it. He would court women, and then the women would say, John is emotionally absent. So they would not marry him. But on the surface, we would say, well, this is just, the family's intact, there's no, let me tell you something, this is the question. Not whether or not we are broken, how broken are we? <laughs> What's the degree, the extent of our brokenness, right? In fact, John Wesley, and man, what a blessing he is to the history of the church. But John Wesley married a woman that church historians say they're not even sure he consummated their marriage, but being emotionally unable to connect, he left her. They just lived separate. And only one line is recorded about his interaction with this woman that he married, and it's on the day that she dies. He has a journal entry that records her name and that she died. But he does incredible things for God. Hello, Methodist. He brings to the forefront the lay minister. Everybody can minister, everybody can teach. In fact, and this is interesting, a side note, this is his mom, Susanna, she was a very strong personality. In fact, when I read about Susanna, checked myself, I was like, Lord, I don't want JD to be like, you know, yeah, girl, Second Samuel. <laughs> I don't, you know what I'm saying? John Wesley's mom, Susanna, is the one who told him that there are people who are not officially in the role of a pastor who are able to teach the word of God. History goes that there was a gathering of believers 
You can call it church meeting if you want. And John Wesley, traveling as he did, was late getting back to the meeting, but there was another man present who stood up to teach the word. John Wesley's mom was there. John Wesley was incensed. He was like, man, I'm gonna go have words with him. He doesn't have the authority to teach. He, he's not the pastor, he's not a minister. He hasn't trained, he hasn't, and his mom stopped him. John Wesley's mom said, John, you can do that if you want, but that man is as called to minister as you are. And that would be the explosion of the lay minister. That's our church history. The question is not whether we are broken. It truly is to what degree or extent are we broken. The family unit is supposed to be the chief mode of the gospel being transferred from generation to generation. In the context of the family is where discipleship is supposed to happen. In the context of the family is where the gospel is supposed to be passed from one generation to the next. In relay races, where's coach, the runner, there he is. I run too. Everybody all nervous, don't wanna laugh. Um, in relay races, there is an area of the track that is called the changeover box. And this is the area of the track where the incoming runner who has just run their leg of the race comes in to pass the baton to the person who is waiting. 20 meter area of the track where in that space, the person coming in catches up to the person who starts running, but you gotta stay in the changeover box, right? And when I looked into this, I found it really interesting because I learned that the person who is coming in and the person who is going out, they are at a period of time running at the same pace. They are running at the same speed. So here is something that is fascinating to me about that. There is something called the blind handoff. The person who is going to run the next lap, thanks, never looks back. The one who is coming in maintains his speed, but they are coached to run beyond the runner waiting for the baton. They don't slow down. So they're not running thinking, when I get this baton to you, I stop. They run in their mind to run beyond the next lap runner. But in that changeover box, the incoming runner has the responsibility to hold the baton properly. The person going out doesn't look back. The person coming in yells. Sometimes they say, stick, to let them know I'm here. It's your turn to take it. If the baton is dropped, 
it's usually the incoming runner who has not done what they're supposed to do. If the baton is not held properly, they cannot grab it, so they fumble it. If the runner is lazy, sees the target in sight and thinks I'm almost there and gives up, they compromise the win. The changeover box happens in the context of family. Every mother and every father to every snotty nose, diaper-needing kid is supposed to be walking up and yelling, stick! And it's not supposed to be our deathbed, well, I hope you got the gospel, baby. Jesus is real. We're supposed to be living every day, running our lap, where our children see us running our lap. They're supposed to see us holding the baton, the gospel, properly, handling it rightly. They're supposed to be positioned and ready. Their bodies are supposed to be conditioned that when we get to them, not only are they running, but we're still running. We're not done with our race yet. point in the changeover box where the outgoing runner and the incoming runner are running at the same pace. And if anything is off, then all of it is off. So we care about our families. We care about what God does in the preservation of the church and in advancing the gospel because it is his plan. We didn't have Sunday school until the church was about 17, until the church was maybe a thousand years old, a thousand and some change. We didn't have Sunday school. Parents taught their kids. Sunday school explodes. And instead of parents speeding up toward the changeover box, they slow down in their lap. Youth groups explode. So parents call it a night. Twice a week, for an hour and a half is not enough to combat the wicked onslaught of a culture against your children. <laughs> Pastor David Jeremiah says this, he says disciples are made when new believers are taught the word, led by example, and then trained to transfer the faith to others. Every Christian's legacy should include an enduring testimony and a commitment to discipleship. That is what we do as parents. That is what we do as grandparents, as aunts, as uncles, as families, as a community and a body of Christ. I want to say this last thing. 
It is remarkable to me that Joseph and Mary <laughs> were able to travel for an entire day and not realize they lost the Messiah. They traveled for a day. Joseph, I say, seemed to have lost the chosen one. Do you know what we might find him? Ah, Mary, don't worry about it. He's here with everybody. Well, we better check it out. He is Jesus. So they're traveling through their company and they're looking and, and they're like, he's not here. Jesus is not here. You know the story. But isn't it remarkable that they had the kind of context where they could assume he's just with us for an entire day? Not in my sight, but with us. There is a great need for community and the body of Christ where we as like-minded believers understand that we have a precious gospel to pass down to our children. It doesn't mean that we do it in isolation. I mean, I'm protective of my kids. They're not Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? God uses the family to expand the church and advance the gospel. The early church would have known this, would have accepted this, and this would have been characteristic of their gathering, their meetings. That fathers trained children, that mothers loved them. Our modern construct of church has rendered us fruitless. Let it not be said of us. You've been listening to a message by Miki Addison titled, God Sets Families Apart on American Family Radio. You can hear more of Miki on airing the Addison's weekday mornings on Urban Family Talk. If there's not an Urban Family Talk station in your area, you can listen live or download podcast at urbanfamilytalk.com. We hope you've enjoyed this special broadcast on American Family Radio.